last week we started a sermon series on 1 Peter and we looked at the very first verse and the Apostle Peter set the scene for us and we found out that the letter at 1 Peter was written to those Christians that were suffering and the writing was on the wall that they were going to suffer a lot more. If we went way back to when Peter was fishing after he denied Jesus and we were reminded that Jesus restored their relationship and he said, feed my sheep. And so many years later, Peter, as an older man, is writing this letter to feed the sheep of Jesus. And that's why he's writing. And his concern is very practical. He starts off his letter with a lot of what we might call doctrine, a lot of what we call foundational things, because not because Peter wants to fill our head with useless pieces of information. <laughs> because these doctrines, because these core foundations are so helpful, so practical when we face suffering no matter what sort of suffering we have. They're kind of the, the foundation, the, the, the stonework that we stand on as we look to Jesus. So today is very much a foundation building. So as we come to God's word, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. And we're going to tackle a few tricky things today, but we know that your spirit can open our hearts and minds and we look forward to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question. How do you start an email or a letter? What are the first words you write? <laughs> well, I, I, I write a whole lot more emails than I do letters, so I tend to start with things like, Hi Jack, or Hi Mary. That's my repertoire, really. And if I don't really know them well or don't know them at all, I might say, Hi Ken, it's Douglas here from St Andrews. You know, or, or Hi Jane. You know, we, we met a couple of days ago and we, we talked about something, you know, and, and you do that. So how do you start your emails? Probably something similar, I'm guessing, considering the ones that I've received. Hmm. Yes, that's right, you do. And you do, don't you? Now, compare this with Peter. Now, how does he start his letter? Well, his letter, there's no comparison about how he starts his letter to how we write our emails. Do you know, after he says, I'm Peter and I'm writing to you, in verse 2, he not only puts the whole gospel into one verse, but also the Trinity. I never start my emails by saying, Hi, Douglas here, by the way, and put the gospel and the Trinity in the next sentence. But Peter does it, and he does it really well. Now, before this, if I said, where do we go to in the Bible for a summary of the gospel in one verse, where would you go to? John 3.16? That's where we go to, isn't it? If anyone says, you know, what's the gospel in a verse or in a sentence, we'd say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's great, isn't it? And it should still be our go-to, because 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 gets a little bit deep. In fact, if the Bible was a university course, which it is not, Thankfully, the Bible is not a university course, but if it was, John 3.16 would be at a 100 level, and 1 Peter 1 verse 2 would be, well, postgraduate. <laughs> and again, Peter's doing this not just so to fill our heads with all sorts of information which may or may not be relevant, but he's doing it because it's a very practical help when we come to suffering. So let's dive in and see what verse 2 is going to tell us about the gospel and about the Trinity. 
I'll read the opening verse just to give you the context, and then we'll focus in verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Man, where do you start with this? <laughs> it's a little bit like that, isn't it? Now, first of all, can you see the Trinity? Can you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? So, this verse is telling us what each member of the Trinity does for us. So what does God the Father do for us? What does God the Son, what does God the Spirit do for us? So first of all, we're told that God the Father has chosen us, and we call this election. That's the doctrine of election. Then the Holy Spirit is transforming us, and that's the doctrine of sanctification. And then Jesus has sprinkled or covered us with his blood, and that's the doctrine of atonement. Normally when I use the word doctrine, Christians' eyes glaze over and their heads start to hurt. And they think, well, that's all up over there, but I'm interested in practical, everyday Christianity. Why do I need to know about election, sanctification, and justification? Well, these are very practical, foundational truths that have a real practical help for us when we unpack them. Now, it's too much to do in one service. So I'm going to stick with what Jesus does for us today, and next week I'm going to pick, on what, pick up on what the Father and the Spirit will do for us. So today we're going to look at what it means to be sprinkled with the blood. Well, before I did that, before I, I scooted ahead there, did you notice what our responsibility is? Our responsibility, God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit do three things for us and we are to be obedient. That's our response. So let's focus on the sprinkled blood. Now when we hear the term sprinkled blood in the Bible, we're taken back to the Old Testament. When you went to church, the temple in the Old Testament, you would go with a sheep or a goat or a bull and you would take it to the priest. The priest would inspect it to make sure that there was no injuries or no blemishes or any sores. And if the animal was you know, healthy and well, the priest would then take it and kill it. And he would do two things. The priest would collect the blood and part of the sacrifice it would be sprinkled on the sides of the altar. And he would also take part of the animal and that would be burnt on the altar. That's what the Old Testament means by the sprinkling of the blood. And we use the word atonement. Atonement has been made. And so what does atonement mean? Well, the English word is really helpful here. And so just see what I do with the word atonement. If you split the one word into three words, it means at one meant. Atonement means to be made at one with our Heavenly Father. To atone means to be at one. So that's what atonement means. Now, that's still a big word that can make your head hurt. So I'm going to go through three case studies taken from everyday world, well, mostly from everyday world, but situations that you can relate to to help understand what atone to be made one is. And the first example is going to come from marriage. And so, in a healthy marriage, the husband and wife are at one with each other. 
It's a special and unique relationship. If you're married, the relationship you have with your spouse is like no other relationship you have. And a healthy marriage is, is known for warmth and companionship. And it's a very safe and nurturing place to be. You are at one with your spouse. However, there are times when this at-one-ness is upset and a separation occurs between the husband and wife. And the question is, how do we restore that at-oneness? I'll give you an example. Uh, as a couple get to know each other, they become aware of each other's vulnerabilities. They know which buttons to push to get a reaction. So we can imagine that a couple are having a little bit of a disagreement, and then the husband uses the vulnerability he knows about his wife against him in a cruel and harsh and uncalled-for way. Just nasty. Now what happens at that moment is that at-oneness is broken. They're not at one anymore. There's a separation. And so the wife will withdraw emotionally which is good and proper and healthy for her protection. And so she might go off into another room, and he's left there. And even the densest husband will soon pick up that he's made a mistake. It may be because he gets the cold shoulder. It may be because he gets a cold meal served up at that time. It may be because something's thrown at him. Wives have very subtle ways of communicating with their husband when that at-oneness is broken. So eventually the, the, the husband realises, oh, well, that's, this is a problem, what shall I do? So most Kiwi husbands will pretend nothing's happened and they will try and be positive around their wife. They'll be smiley and oh, we can watch whatever movie you want to tonight, dear, you know, and indicate in a very obscure way that they want to move on, bury the hatchet. Now, a wise wife will not accept this because the at-oneness has been broken. So the question is, how does the husband make that at-oneness togetherness happen again? And so this is how it should work. The offence was a verbal offence, so therefore a verbal apology is what's called for. And it might go something like this. The husband, without justification and without minimising what's happened, the husband can say something, Honey, I'm sorry for what I said. It was uncalled for and hurtful. Will you forgive me? And I can tell from my wife who's chucking it away that um, forgiveness will happen. But it may not happen straight away. She may not have to sleep on it. But that's an appropriate response, isn't it? He crossed the line verbally. He's apologised verbally. And in most healthy marriages, that's enough to recreate at oneness. They're at one again. And that's the definition of atonement, being made at one. Atonement, to atone, to be made at one, is the price paid to restore a relationship. And the price is proportional or appropriate to the offence. So whatever caused the separation needs to be appropriate. Verbal offence calls for a verbal apology. Let's just step this up to a second case study, not cruel words, but to an affair. So, second case study. Now, it comes to light that a husband has been having an affair and that he's betrayed his wife for another woman. Now, it turns out to be historic and that he called the affair off a couple of months earlier and he has not seen that woman since. However, 
it comes to light and his wife finds out. Immediately their at oneness is broken and there's a separation that's there. The husband is genuinely remorseful and he understands that he has to do something to restore a broken relationship. So what's it going to take? Is a verbal apology enough? If he says something like, Honey, I'm sorry for what I did. It was uncalled for and hurtful. Will you forgive me? Is that enough to restore? It's not, is it? It's a start. It's a helpful start, but it's not enough. It's not enough because the offence, the betrayal was behaviour. It wasn't verbal, was it? It was behaviour. So to recreate the oneness, there needs to be a change in behaviour. The payment, if we can use the word payment, that the husband has to make has to be appropriate. And so this may be something that they decide on. And they will decide that because the husband lied about where he was, there are sometimes the wife would ring and he would be with the other woman and he just wouldn't pick up. Or he might be in the car driving to see the other woman and his wife would ring up and he said, I'm on the way to the gym, I'll see you in three hours. So that's part of the offence. So this is what would be a good way to pay back. The husband guarantees that he will have his phone on him 24 hours a day and he will answer no matter what. Because in the past he wouldn't answer and his wife would now think if he's not, if she now rings and he doesn't answer, she will always be wondering whether he's with another woman. So he will answer. So if he's driving in the car, he has his hands-free set up. If he's playing golf, he has his... He has um, you know, his phone in his pocket, even if he's about to make a birdie putt. Getting a bit excited here. A birdie putt. And she rings. He will say, wait a minute, guys, I need to take this call. And of course, whether he makes the putt after he comes back is another question. He might be a businessman. He might be a salesman. He might be in a meeting twice the size before very important clients, and there's a $20,000 contract on the line, and his wife rings him in the middle of that. And what is he going to do? He has to pick up, because if he doesn't, his wife will think he's with another woman. He has to commit to saying, excuse me, everyone, this is my wife. It's important that I make the call. And his wife will make sure that she rings once a day. And the wife makes the decision when this will stop. Now, is that appropriate? Is that proportional to the offence? Of course it is, because it was his behaviour that was the betrayal, and so the wife needs time to see his behaviour is modified so she can rebuild trust and that, that at oneness, that he can atone, be made at one again. Shall we step it up again for the third case study? The third case study is imagine yourself as a military officer high up in your battalion and there's a war on and you actively betray your battalion and lives are lost. We call this treason. Imagine a few months later that you're found out. Is a verbal apology enough? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I promise I won't do it again. What about saying, I'll tell you what, I'll keep my phone on me 24-7. You can ring me anytime you like, and I will assure you that I'm not committing treason. Well, it's not going to work, is it? What do most countries do for a situation where someone commits treason and lives are lost? Well, there's a death penalty, or 
banishment, life in prison, never to see the light of day. Now you can argue about the level of, of punishment there, but it's not a verbal apology, is it? A verbal apology is never going to cut it for treason. So, what about, what about if you betray not just your battalion or your country, but what if you betray the living God? What if you uh, rebel against the king of the universe? What if you commit treason not against your country, not against the prime minister or your king, but against the rightful authority of the universe? What is the appropriate punishment to be at one with God our maker? A verbal apology is not going to make it, is it? You can't go to God and say, look, God, I'm really sorry. You know, I've just turned my back on you in so many ways. And, you know, I want to live my own life and just have you in there when it suits. That's not going to cut it in the same way that it wouldn't cut it for an affair and it wouldn't cut it for treason. It's got to be at least as much for treason against your country. And because it's treason against God, our maker, it's got to be more. And the Bible makes it clear that it's going to cost us our life for betraying our heavenly Father against the Creator. Eternal banishment from his presence. And so the only place in the universe which has not got the presence of God is a place called hell. In fact, that's the definition of hell. If God takes a small part of the universe and removes himself from that, it becomes hell. And that's very, very clear in the Bible. And so we're in a serious amount of trouble. Much more trouble than the husband who said the cruel words. Much more trouble than the husband who had an affair. And and even more trouble than that person, that military person who betrayed his battalion. However, there is good news, wonderful news, amazing news in the Bible. Because there is someone who can pay that price on our behalf, a price that is proportional to our offence against God and can restore us to God. Amazing, isn't it? And this price that was paid was not our life, but the life of God's own Son. You see, Jesus was fully human, so he could be in our place, but fully God, so he had no sin. And so Jesus died in our place, paying the price for our atonement to make us one with God. And he paid with his blood. He shed his blood to atone to make you and I one with God. And this price is appropriate and it's proportionate. And it fully reconciles us to God. We can be at one God here now today because Jesus paid the price. And that's what atonement means in the Bible. Jesus paid the price to make us at one with God. And that price was his life his blood. And some of you are saying, well, hang on a minute, surely my turning my back on my God, you know, isn't that bad? You know, you know, look, if I stomach, if I promise not to yell at the dog or kick the kids, or is it the other way around? Kick the dog and yell at the kids. Either way, if I promise to stop doing that, if I promise to go to church every Sunday, if I promise to tithe before tax, God would be, must be impressed with that. Surely that's enough. Surely that's the price. Because I'm not that bad. But unfortunately the Bible is very clear that each one of us, including the one at the front, is that bad. 
And so the Bible says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. All have sinned, without exception. And 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, eternal death, separation from God. This is the grim state, the default state for every human born throughout history. And if nothing is done, then it's grim. However, we then have the good news of the gospel, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us since we are justified by his blood. You see, nowhere is God's love more profoundly displayed within when Christ died on the cross in our place. He paid the price with his blood to make us at one to atone. That means we're forgiven, restored, and adopted as dearly loved daughters and sons. This is what it means to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Now, until you understand this, until you admit that Christ needed to die for you, until you rest in the fact that Christ did die for you, until you are so filled with joyful gratitude that you love to obey him, until you experience this, you know in your heart of hearts that just saying sorry is not enough. Until you understand that you are so bad that Jesus needed to die for you, until you understand that you are so valuable and loved that Jesus willingly died for you, you will never know the peace of knowing that you are forgiven and being at one with God. And we often fall into two camps. Some of us beat ourselves up. We're self-haters. And so we need to know that God loved us so much that he willingly died for us. Others of us think we're okay. We play the comparing game. And we think of people that are unpleasant and we say we're better than them. We're not too bad. We might never admit it because we're Kiwis and we keep this thing under our hats. But some of us think we're not too bad. And we need to know that we are so bad that Christ had to die for us. You see the balance? You are so valuable that Christ died for you. You are so bad. I am so bad that he had to die for me. And when we're facing trials and when we're suffering for whatever reason, this can be a tremendous encouragement, whether it be health crisis, financial reversal, relationship breakdown, that Jesus loved us so much and died for us to make us one with his Father is a tremendous encouragement. It's a foundation that we stand on when the world around us is falling apart. And as we cling to Christ, the Holy Spirit will show us how to stand firm and do so with joy. And that's the theme of 1 Peter, standing firm, finding joy. Something I hope that we will catch an echo of as we come to the communion table. For as we take the bread, his body, and the cup, his blood, we remember what it cost Jesus to make us at one with our Heavenly Father. And so we take the cup with the wine, the blood, the blood of Jesus that is sprinkled that covers us and atones and make us one. And so Jesus left us this celebration, this symbolic meal, 
so that we could be reminded that he paid the price to make us one. That's what atonement means. This is our delight as we stand firm, finding joy in the face of the worst of trials. Let's pray.